0: Rhythm and Light in Chicago, I'm Steve Ordauer, and welcome to Rhythm of Life. Today on the show, Bob Hercules sits down with attorney Flint Taylor to discuss the murder of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton in 1969, who is the subject of the recent film Judas and the Black Messiah, with five Oscar nominations, including for Best Picture, This movie ultimately took home an Academy Award for Daniel Kaluuya's performance as Fred Hampton in the Best Supporting Actor category. Along with his partner Jeff Haas in the People's Law Office, Flint Taylor takes us through the journey of how they uncovered and proved the truth about what happened to Fred Hampton and fellow Black Panther Mark Clark. They were able to alter the public's perception being put forth by Cook County State's Attorney Edward V. Hanrahan and other public officials that the Panthers were a terrorist organization and were the aggressors in this altercation. Even though the media reported this fabrication initially as the truth, these two remarkably persistent lawyers were able to shine a light on the orchestrated assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, And show that their murders were part of a larger counterintelligence program initiated by the FBI aimed at surveilling, infiltrating, discrediting, disrupting, and neutralizing American political organizations and leaders deemed subversive.
1: I want to welcome Flint Taylor to the program today. Flint is the author of The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago, and he's a longtime member of the People's Law Office. Thanks for coming down here today, Flint.
2: Glad to do it, Bob.
1: So I want to start off by taking you back in time to the year 1969, a very tumultuous year, obviously. Give us, set the scene a little bit about that time, 69. What was it like? What was going on? And eventually what led up to the Hampton incident?
2: Well, uh back in 1969, uh the, the the struggle against the war in Vietnam was was at its height. Uh the Black Panthers, uh the Young Lords, uh the the SDS, uh, Young Patriots, all these groups uh, revolutionary and radical groups here in Chicago and, and many of them across the country were gaining strength and um, here in Chicago the, the Panthers uh, were organizing something called the Rainbow Coalition with the uh, Young Lords which was a Puerto Rican group and uh, the Young Patriots which was an Appalachian group uh, of, of, of people who were poor whites who had moved up here and of course SDS was, was a radical uh, student organization Uh, And all of that coming together in 1969 at the time uh, that Nixon uh, had just been elected and was escalating the war in Vietnam uh, was a time when young people uh, particularly and people of color in particular uh, were organizing uh, and taking to the streets. Uh, and demonstrating. Uh, And with regard to the Panthers, they had set out a whole program, uh, a 10-point program, a revolutionary program uh, for change in this country. And so that's really what it was like in 1969. Personally, I was a law student at Northwestern uh, in 1969, and that's where I got my Uh, entry into the movement, uh, entry into what became the People's Law Office later in 1969.
1: How did you uh, happen to meet Fred Hampton?
2: Well, I met Fred Hampton, we had started an office, uh, several young lawyers uh, and several young law students uh, had started an office in August of 1969 called the People's Law Office. Uh, We opened up uh, a storefront. It was a. It was previously a sausage shop uh, up at the on uh, on Halsted Street, uh, Halstead and Webster, which at that point was in the middle of a very diverse uh, working class community, uh, and uh, we were representing many of those groups I just mentioned. Uh, particularly the Black Panthers, and at the time we started uh, and had was were working on these cases, Fred Hampton had been railroaded and sent to the penitentiary uh, and he was uh, in Menard way down state uh, and myself and and the lawyers and other students were working on getting him released on what they call appeal bond uh, while his case was on appeal uh, the um, uh, we were attempting to get get bond for him what uh, was he uh charged with there? he was charged with robbery uh it was a a, a a case where in maywood which is where fred hampton was from uh, right west of chicago um a ice cream truck had been stopped and uh ice cream had been taken from the the, the driver and fred hampton was charged with that and and it was an ice cream truck uh, robbery. robbery. And and what he really was charged with was taking $71 worth of ice cream and passing it out to the kids in the neighborhood.
1: Wow. Um, And for that, he was sent to Menard.
2: He was. um, And, of course, it was a highly political case in the sense that uh, he was already very well known as a charismatic leader of the Black Panther Party. Uh, and the prosecutor at that time was, was Edward V. Hanrahan, uh, who was uh, uh, next in line to take the original Richard Daly's place as the mayor of the city of Chicago.
1: He was like the heir apparent to, he was to the old man.
2: Right. And uh, initially the judge was going to, uh, when when Fred was convicted... Uh, which uh, was questionable in of itself because it was an eyewitness identification. Uh, the judge was going to give him probation, hmm. but Hanrahan came down very heavily on the judge, who was who was an African American judge, and he changed up and gave Fred two to five years. Wow! In the penitentiary. Amazing.
1: And what, we know that Hampton was perceived to be a threat by the FBI. Why was he perceived to be such a threat?
2: Well, I, I touched on it briefly. Uh, he, was, he was 21 years old uh, when he came out of the penitentiary. We did successfully get him an appeal bond, um, and he did come out of, of Menard pending appeal uh, in August of 1969, just about the time we were actually opening the People's Law mm. Office itself. right? Um, and he was uh, just uh, a tremendous leader. For his age, it was remarkable.
3: That's all right, because we said, even before this happened, and we're going to say it after this, and after I'm locked up, not after everybody's locked up, that you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't
4: jail a revolution.
2: Right. Uh, and uh, the, the powers that be uh, understood that. He had a tremendous capacity for leadership. He had a tremendous capacity for organizing and bringing together different groups uh, who were opposed to the government, who were opposed to the war in Vietnam, who were opposed to police brutality. Anybody
3: that's out there for the protection of the people happens to be in direct conflict with them. What makes them mad about it? What makes them mad about it is that they
2: had
3: black people, and white poor people, and red poor people, and Puerto Rican poor people, and Latin American Puerto Rican people, of, uh, uh, poor people of all the sense, they had them caught up in these movements based on racism when the Black Panther Party stood up and said that we don't care what anybody says. We don't think you fight fire with fire best, we think you fight fire with water best. We're going to fight racism, not racism, but we're going to fight with solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight it with socialism. We still have to say we're not going to fight reactionary pigs and reactionary states attorneys like this and reactionary states attorneys like hand to hand with any other reactions on our part. We're going to fight their reactions with all of us people to get together and have an international proletarian revolution. Right on. Right, on. Right, on. right on. And that's saying all powers of people. Right on. right on. That's saying that no matter what color you are, you're just only two classes. And that's saying that there's a class over here and there's a class over there. And the reason that this class over here has never did anything to get this class off its back because this is lower, this is upper, this is the oppressed, this is the oppressor, this is the exploited, this is the exploiter. And these people in this class have divided themselves They say, I'm black and I hate white people. I'm white and I hate black people. I'm Latin and I hate hillbiddies. I'm and I hate Indians. So we fight amongst each other.
2: And so he became a target. He became a target even before uh, he was the chairman of the Black Panther Party here in uh, Illinois. Uh, but as he came out of the penitentiary, uh, he was the chairman of, of the Illinois Black Panther Party. And he hit the ground running in terms of continuing uh, to organize uh, and continuing to be very outspoken about the right of, of black folks in particular and people in general to defend themselves against police brutality. And so that, uh, together with the programs, the socialistic programs, the Breakfast for Children program, the uh, education programs, the, the the medical clinic programs, all of that, uh, which was embodied in the Ten Point program, uh, the, the, the fact that... That, that that black folks should not uh, fight in a war in Vietnam. Um, all of those things made him in particular and the Black Panther Party in general t- a target of not only local law enforcement, the police, and not only the prosecutor Edward Hanrahan, uh, but also, uh, as it turns out, the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation and J. Edgar Hoover.
1: And they started. They had a program going called COINTELPRO. And as I recall, Fred was one person among others that they were concerned about, a black messiah, supposedly. Can you talk about the FBI program called COINTELPRO and the idea of the perceived threat of a black messiah such as Fred Hampton?
2: Well, J. Edgar Hoover created more or less the FBI in the 20s, and it was created uh, to, uh, in, in large part, to combat uh, uh, radical and revolutionary organizations of its time. Uh, Marcus Garvey, uh, the radical uh, anarchists of the day. Uh, and it, it, part of that program uh, of the FBI, almost from its inception, was not only to, 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 to fight crime, so to speak, not only to uh, surveil, but to disrupt these organizations. And uh, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, Hoover uh, developed this, this, this program called COINTELPRO, uh, or Counterintelligence Program. And it was designed, again, to, to disrupt uh, organizations such as the Communist Party, the Socialist Workers Party, and other organizations. Uh, and as uh, the movements became uh, more uh, uh, powerful, uh, particularly in the 60s, uh, and became uh, led by and, and, and uh, people of color, uh, the uh, tactics that were part of this illegal uh, and unconstitutional COINTELPRO program became even more violent. Hmm. Uh, and um, as the uh, late 60s, when um, such organizations as, as as Dr. King and SCLC, uh, Malcolm X, uh, and... Um, the uh, Nation of Islam and, and Elijah Muhammad, uh, Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael. Snick. And SNCC. Snick, of right. course. Yeah. All of these leaders and organizations were very powerful in the civil rights movement and in the black liberation struggle. So Hoover then sent out memos in 67 and again in early 68 uh, calling for disruption and, quote, neutralization of these leaders and these organizations. And, of course, we learned that neutralization is a term and was a term of art Uh, cia used it uh, and that could mean uh, several things but it included of course assassination Hmm. um and uh that they named not only the organizations uh from sclc um all the way to the nation of islam and and SNCC and 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 uh rap brown and his organization but they named those leaders as messiahs who could electrify and unify the black nationalist movement Uh, And uh, they then sent this, Hoover sent out this memo saying we need to neutralize these leaders and these organizations and prevent the rise of a messiah uh, who could uh, um, do this uh, in the sense of could um, electrify and unify the movement.
3: We always say to the Black Panther Party that they can do anything they want to to us. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that.
2: And so Fred Hampton fit into that category soon after these memos went out and of course the second memo went out in early 1968 only a month before Dr. King was assassinated hmm. um and when they named the messiahs uh, they named king uh they named uh rap brown they named Stokely uh, they named Ra- um Malcolm even though he was already dead at that point assassinated as well um, and they didn't name Fred, uh, but he fit that uh, category. And, of course, uh, when the Panthers became uh, stronger and their leadership became stronger than those leaders, and particularly Fred became a messiah who uh, was targeted and ultimately assassinated by uh, the FBI and local police here.
1: Had you known about this COINTELPRO program, like in that time in 69, or did you find it out a few years later? I can't remember.
2: Yes. um, We didn't know about COINTELPRO. It was a highly secret uh, program, Mm. as you might uh, uh, think. Uh, And uh, it was uh, uncovered somewhat accidentally when uh, some activists broke into a... FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. Oh, I've heard in, about that in story. 1971, right. and uh, and they grabbed a, a trove of of FBI documents. And when they started to look through them, they saw this program COINTELPRO. Uh, and then uh, some media folks started to FOI uh, um, COINTELPRO. Just and, to
1: be clear, making freedom of information right, requests
2: exactly, uh, and. Um, Uh, We, at that time, uh, were just embarking on a lawsuit after Fred Hampton had been assassinated uh, in which uh, the Panthers and we uh, believed— that this wasn't just a local operation, because of all the public statements that Hoover and John Mitchell, who was the head of the Justice Department under um, under Nixon and who ultimately was totally discredited behind Watergate, uh, were making about the Panthers being the the biggest threat uh, in the country and and all of that, uh, so. Uh, When these COINTELPRO documents started to come out, we started in our lawsuit in in the mid-'70s to focus on the FBI and its role in the Fred Hampton case, which they had kept secret as well uh, until uh, the uh, informant provocateur who worked for the FBI, William uh, O'Neill, was outed. Uh, in another case here in, in, in 1973, and that, together with the COINTELPRO revelations, led us on our path to uh, establish over the next decade uh, that Fred Hampton was assassinated as part of the FBI COINTELPRO program.
1: And how did you first hear about his murder uh, of him and mark
2: clark yeah the first time i met fred uh or saw him was i had worked on getting him out uh met his mother and father out in maywood and his brother bill uh and when he first came out uh there's there's a very uh well-known scene uh of him speaking at the church over here very close to where we are now uh, on the near west side the people's church it was called uh, and he had what what amounted to a revival upon his release and um we heard him speak at that point and, and it was remarkably moving uh, and the church was packed, of course, and it was a welcome home and he was, he was talking about the, hearing the beat of the people and, and talking about, um, about revolution, really.
3: We said that we would work with anybody, from coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind. We're not a racist organization because we understand that racism is an excuse used. Of capitalism. And we know that racism is just just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be alright if everything was put back in the hands of the people. And we're going to have to put it back in the hands of the people. We have breakfast children because we teach the people through practice, through observation and participation, that people can be dead free. That people say socialism is the people. You're afraid of yourself. If you're afraid of socialism, you're afraid of yourself. We say all power to all people. All we say people. white power to white people. White brown black power, people. power to brown people. Brown brown people. Power to brown people. Brown yellow people. power to yellow people. Yellow black power to black people. Power to black people. Black 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 X power people. to those that be left out. I believe, I believe, Pray, must all be free. I learned a lot when I was in prison. I had an educational process, a learning process. Sometimes I started thinking about some of the actions going to be taken against me and other members of the party, and I said, I don't know why I'm not scared. You know what I define as being? I define as being a people high. I define as being high off the people. You high? I'm high. You understand what I'm saying? I'm high off the people. And I went to the penitentiary way down to in the Illinois. I'm thinking, I said, well, I'm way down here in the country. I might can't hear no people. When I got to Menard, I myself, even being in the Vanguard, had to get on my knees and learn from the people. I had to put my ear to the ground. And when I put my ear to the ground, I heard a beat. <laughs> and said, Here's that beat? <laughs> know so we're talking about we talking about it can't be stopped by anybody we're talking about we're going to make some changes in this
2: system you can see that uh, in the murder of Fred Hampton Mike Gray and Howard Oaks um, iconic black-and-white 1971 movie and it's redepicted depicted in, in in the movie uh, Judas and the Black Messiah
1: right which we'll get to in
2: a second um, um, but um, Going back to your, to, to, to your question, um, I first uh, was involved in the actual murder uh, investigation within hours of, of Fred being uh, and Mark being murdered um, in the early morning hours of December 4th. The lawyers, as I said, we were representing the Panthers, so we got a call. And I got a call from our lawyers to come to the crib, to the apartment uh, on 2337 West Monroe Street here in Chicago. It was sometime in the early morning. Uh, So I left home, uh, went to my law school, Northwestern, uh, got another law student, uh, Jack Welch, who was was working with us in, in the People's Law Office, and we went to the apartment. Uh, and we had a crew organized by Skip Andrew, uh, one of the People's Law Office lawyers, to take evidence, to document evidence uh, of the of the murder scene. Uh, and we had uh, a filmmaker, Mike Gray, uh, there, and we had um, photographers there, and. And a crew of us were taking evidence. Uh,
1: And so as I understand it, there was no blockade. Like it was the house was wide open, as I recall. And uh, maybe you can describe that because it sounded to me when I read your book about this. It was incre- I was incredulous that they would just leave this wide open is that, was that the
2: case yes um, it, uh, a remarkable mistake, a blunder uh, as it were, uh, from the point of view of, of 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 suppressing the truth and covering up uh, by the police. Uh, it was like just about dawn by the time they finished their murderous raid. Uh, And you would expect that they would have set it up as a crime scene with the yellow tape and all of that. But instead, uh, either because they were so overconfident that their false story about a shootout uh, would would carry the day, and of course it didn't originally, um, they... um, they left.
1: After a 15-minute gun battle that cost Illinois Black Panther Party Chairman Fred Hampton his life, Sergeant Gross described the parade as 15 minutes of hell and a miracle. A miracle because not one policeman was killed. A miracle because not more policemen were shot. The firing stopped only when the occupants realized their arsenal was no match for the police arsenal, an arsenal that included a 45 caliber submachine gun
4: and two shotguns.
2: Now, the other um, possibility uh, or theory about why they left is that they knew as the sun rose and that community saw uh, what had happened, that there could be an uprising. Uh, And so that they they got out of there before uh, that happened. Uh,
1: So they didn't leave anybody stationed there or anything? Nobody. It was wide
2: open. And and, uh, we all went there. Uh, Bobby Rush, uh, uh, who was uh, the Minister of Defense and, 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 and uh, another important leader here of the Panthers in Chicago.
1: Now a congressman.
2: Exactly. And right. former alderman as well. Right. Um, he, he held a press conference in front of the apartment, and he uh, very famously said, we lay this murder at the foot of J. who Edgar, of course, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover
4: we prove that these pigs murdered Fred Hampton while he was asleep. They attempted to wipe out the Black panther Party and and after they if they succeed in this, if black people allow them to succeed in this, then they're going to move on black people in general just like Hitler did in Germany
2: but at that point, it was more a belief based on uh, on on statements and the fact there were raids all over the country of panther offices, but the documentation. Uh, came later, um, but but I spent ten days in that apartment with many others uh, wow. taking evidence. Um, we we um, the Panthers uh, had um, um, uh, tours uh, that they conducted every day of people who in the community who came through. Uh, Hundreds and thousands of people. Not only. It was
1: always just wide open. Anybody could walk in.
2: Yes, yes. um What was
1: it like for you when you first walked in? This is your friend, your client, somebody you had a lot of uh, faith in. And he was. It was a murderous rampage, really. I'm sorry to ask you, but what was this like for you personally to walk into that house?
2: Well, I was basically a, the same age as fred hampton but of course from a very different background uh and a bit naive uh, so to walk in to the apartment of course the first thing was was shock you know you hmm. you there was blood on, the, on on the floor outside of the apartment uh, uh, uh the room that Fred Hampton had uh, been asleep and murdered in because his body had been, been dragged off of the bed and, and, and laid uh, uh, on the floor there. Uh, there were bullet holes. This was a, a, a very small uh, apartment with with, with uh, plasterboard walls, walls, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, d- dividing very, very tiny bedrooms mm. right. so that uh, you could see bullet holes, which in fact were were made by a machine gun uh, that uh, basically made the walls look like Swiss cheese in mm. terms of the holes. it, it was uh, It was extremely shocking. It was hard to, on the one hand, really comprehend uh, the enormity of the crime that, that you were witnessing, but it was, in 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 fact, a murder scene, a crime scene, yeah, uh, an assassination scene. And I think uh, the fact that uh, we we shifted so quickly from shock to uh, the kind of adrenaline-driven work mm-hmm. uh, of of you know cataloging all of the bullets that were on the floor and bullet shells, and, and 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 all the um bullet holes we didn't know what you know exactly Uh, which pieces of evidence would be the ones uh, that would uh, be the most important. Uh, We did know that uh, the front door was an important piece of evidence because they had started uh, saying that there was one bullet hole and it was the one that showed that the Panthers started it because it went from the inside to the outside. Oh, right. And so we... um, And Skip particularly um, went to that door panel, Mm -hmm. saw there were two holes, one going in and one going out. Mm -hmm. uh, And he uh, then had the pictures uh, and the video taken of the panel in the door. And then we took the panel out of the door and we transported it to a ballistics expert uh, in upstate New York uh, to be analyzed. Wow. And, um, there were several things that were very uh, cloak and daggerish and and and, and uh, very much uh, remained in my mind we the, the The police had said, "Rush is next because Bobby Rush was not in the apartment. Hmm. Uh, we thought they might be coming back to the apartment, so we were like um, operating under a certain amount of fear that actually we might be raided as, wow. and, and, and arrested for what we were doing um, we We were taking the evidence every night to uh, churches, and we wouldn't necessarily know where we were going until we were told. Uh, And then we'd go to the back door of the church, uh, and um, a minister would let us in, and we'd go up uh, a, a a set of stairs to the attic, and that's where we would stash the evidence for safekeeping each night. And, and and the Panthers, the bloody mattress that that Fred was murdered on, um, they would take it and lock it up every night and then uh, every morning they bring it back and put it in its place so when they did the tours they could point to it and say, this is the, the, the mattress that Fred was murdered on. Um, and so those tours were extremely effective and the fact that we were able to uh demonstrate uh, the realities of of, of 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 the evidence inside the apartment was 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 powerful as well um and one thing that I'll I'll recount that uh, during that 10 days that uh, I spent there and uh, the rest of us all spent there before they finally shut it down they meaning the authorities and right. and, and um uh, an older uh, black woman was going through the uh, apartment and on one of the tours and she looked around and she just shook her head and said, um, ain't nothing but a northern lynching. Wow. And oh, so, what a statement. Yeah, that, that that totally stuck with me.
1: I'll bet. I mean, just to let people know, I mean, they the claim was that the Panthers were shooting out at the cops but you finally proved that it was a shoot-in from the cops shooting into the apartment and, and murdering uh, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What, what, did, you, did, what did you prove eventually?
2: Well, yes, the, 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 the walls um, um, told the story. Uh, and we were able to, uh, with the guidance of the ballistics uh, expert, put dowels in the bullet holes, so that you could run a dowel hmm. uh, from the front where the machine guns were fired, for example, and you can run that dowel all the way to the back. Hmm. So it would show the path of all these bullets. Uh, and so when we got through doing that, the path of all the bullets, except that one uh, that went out through the the, 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 the front door area, um, were could be tracked to the police and none other than the one could be tracked to a position where the, where a panther was and that was Mark Clark who was sitting sentry and and uh in all likelihood uh, because of the angle of that bullet it was upwards that he may well have, uh, that shot may have got, been fired after he was shot and killed uh, through the heart hmm. and the gun just went off. Uh so uh, we uh were able to establish that over 90 shots were fired by the police and at most that one by by Mark Clark uh we were able to show uh that Fred unlike the lies that the police were telling that he got up and 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 was you know uh, in the back, firing at the cops who came in from the back, we were able to show that he was in bed asleep, drugged uh, and that uh, shot through the head hmm. uh, after uh, the others uh, had surrendered, and most of the the firing had been um, had been done, hmm. um, so that was uh, the battle that we fought. Uh, in the media to change the narrative at the time, which, of course, Hanrahan had controlled and, and his police had said it was a shootout, that 200 shots had been fired, the Panthers had fired half of them. And, you know, given the way the media had, had uh, slandered and, and had falsely depicted the Panthers— Uh, This was something that was um, easily swallowed by the media and easily put forward on all the front pages of all four uh, papers here in the city of Chicago until uh, we were able to uh, turn that narrative around. I would assume
1: it's, in a way, just a form of racism that they bought this line from Hanrahan, all four papers and the rest of the media at that point.
4: The immediate violence, criminal reaction of the occupants in shooting at announced police officers emphasizes the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party. So does their refusal to cease firing at the police officers when urged to do so several times.
2: Well, uh, you know, the Panthers have been wrongly depicted as a gang. They've been wrongly depicted as as, uh, their their claims of, uh, or their, their policy of defending against, uh, the police and having weapons and all of that. Uh, they were de- depicted as thugs and depicted as just co- cop killers and all of that. So yes, they were, they, they had an image uh, that was reinforced by the false narrative that they were engaged in this major shootout and, uh, they lost, you know, they lost they, with, uh, Two of their leaders being killed and um, four of them being maimed and uh, the rest of them being arrested for t- attempted murder on the police. And that narrative stuck for the first few days until a Sun-Times reporter by the name of Brian Boyer came to the apartment and went on the same tour that the community was going on. Um, and. Because of uh, what he saw, Uh, he wrote a a piece that basically said this narrative that Hanrahan's telling is false. And he laid out uh, basically what uh, anyone who went through that apartment with an open mind would see. Right. And that piece ended up on page 43 of the Chicago Sun-Times next to the obituaries.
1: They buried it.
2: They buried it. And um, Brian quit. And that caught the attention of the editor of the Sun Times, Jim Hogue, at that time, and he came down a couple of nights later. And I, you know, I, I'll never forget this. We were working under floodlights, and uh, apparently he and his wife uh, had been at the opera, and they were dressed to the nines. And they came through, and we showed them, you know, what what we knew. And he went back, and the editorial policy of the Sun-Times and its its sister paper, the afternoon paper, Chicago Daily News at that time, changed their policy, changed the approach. Uh, and then it became kind of a newspaper war between the two uh, Sun-Times, uh, the Fields papers, and the uh, Tribune papers. The Tribune had, of course, the Tribune, uh, Rock, Rock hard conservative Republican paper and its sister paper, the afternoon paper, was the Chicago Today. So then it became kind of a war, and Hanrahan went to the Tribune and gave them a, a false uh, exclusive. Uh, the, old, the the very uh, famous um, bullet holes that turned out to be nail heads, and uh, uh, the Sun and the and, and the Daily News ran an exclusive, giving the Panthers. Um, um, the uh, floor to talk about what happened to them and and, and so it went um, and uh, so it went for the next 13 years as uh, as we fought uh, the case uh, first in the criminal courts to get the the panthers attempt murder charges dropped uh, which they were after it was shown that the, uh, the crime lab the police crime lab had dummied up uh, evidence uh, falsely connecting shells to, to the Panther weapons when they, in fact, uh, were police uh, shells, uh, and then on into federal court, um, where we had our civil rights suit that went on for 13 years.
1: Thirteen years, wow. So this was a 13-year quest to bring justice to the Hampton family. Can I don't know if you could quickly summarize this, but there was all kinds of malfeasances, I recall, from reading the book and uh, twists and turns, and uh, also the discovery that there was an informant named William O'Neill. And uh, maybe you could talk about the role of William O'Neill, how that was discovered.
2: Right. Um, As I said, we filed a civil rights lawsuit um, called 1983, Section 1983, um, in early 1970, uh, on behalf of the Hampton and Clark families, uh, and the seven survivors of the raid, uh, we drew one of the worst judges uh, in in the Chicago federal district court, uh, J Sam Perry. And uh, the battle was on. Uh, first, he threw out Hanrahan and and the prosecutors on an argument of immunity. Uh, we were able to get those defendants restored in uh, 1972. And in early 1973, uh, the revelations came out that a Panther by the name of William O'Neill, who was thought to be and served as a uh, security uh, captain in the Panthers uh, and had access to the Panthers and to Fred Hampton uh, as such, uh, was in fact uh, an FBI informant uh, so we then uh, uh, used uh, the litigation the the lawsuit that we had to turn the focus onto the FBI to find out exactly what O'Neill did and uh, why he did it and 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 who was connected with this uh, higher up than than an FBI informant um, and that led us uh, to the Discovery of a FBI document, which was uh, a floor plan, which O'Neill drew at the uh, instance of his control agent, someone named Roy Martin Mitchell. This uh,
1: is a floor plan of the of the house, the the apartment that Fred Hampton was staying in.
2: Right. It was in a floor plan of of 2337 West Monroe. It was drawn uh, only a couple of weeks before the raid. Uh, it showed uh, in detail where Fred would be sleeping. Uh, and uh, it was part of an FBI document that, on its face, said that it was disseminated to, uh, in other words, given to, uh, Hanrahan, uh, who was the prosecutor whose police officers um... uh, executed the raid.
1: Jeff Haas was Flint Taylor's partner at the People's Law Office and was deeply involved in the Fred Hampton case.
0: While O'Neill was an FBI agent he marked every piece of furniture and even said, this is the bed where Fred Hampton and Deborah Johnson sleep. At that point we could match up the mark on the diagram with where Fred Hampton slept with the trajectories of the police bullets, which by and large were aimed at that particular bed. So. It 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 began to make the whole thing began to get a bigger picture. It wasn't the Panthers. It wasn't a shoot out. It was a shoot in. It was a murder. It wasn't just the local police. It was the local police urged to do it by the FBI. It was a local prosecutor with political ambitions, not on his own taking it on, but the FBI using that.
2: So now we had uh, some um, very uh, powerful evidence that had been kept secret by the FBI for now three, four years, uh, that uh, the FBI was behind the raid and that they, in fact, um, gave the operative document uh, which enabled uh, the assassination of Hampton. Um, so we went from there and, and we um, questioned O'Neill on several occasions in what they called depositions under oath. Uh, we questioned Mitchell, his 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 boss at the Racial Matters Squad. We took it all the way up to the top of the FBI here in Chicago. Um, and we did this over a, a period of, of several years. And while we were doing this, Watergate was, was happening. Right, that's right. And in the wake of Watergate... Uh, there were investigations of the FBI and the CIA and the NSA and all all, all of the various uh, intelligence um, uh, organizations. Right,
1: that was the Church Commission, right, I think, that right. came out after Watergate.
2: Exactly, Senator Frank Church uh, from from Idaho, I think, yeah. uh, headed up the the, the committee. And uh, it was investigating very aggressively the uh, FBI and COINTELPRO. So at the same time, we were pounding away on uh, O'Neill and, and the FBI uh, and its role in, in, in the Hampton assassination. Uh the, the church committee was 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 working on investigating more broadly COINTELPRO and the FBI and the Panthers among others. Right. Um, so I struck up a relationship with one of the key investigators of the church committee, so that we were kind of um, kind of not exactly clandestinely, but certainly not uh, you know upfront either in terms of sharing information. I was uh, you know. Giving to him what we had on O'Neill and the, and and uh, the the the, the uh, involvement of the FBI here, and he was starting to tell me about some of the evidence of COINTELPRO here in Chicago. Hmm. So it, in late '75, when we were about to go to trial in the in the Hampton case um, in federal court, uh, the church he 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 tipped me off to the fact that there were COINTELPRO documents that showed that the raid was part of COINTELPRO, which of course was an amazing link, kind of a missing link between what we were uncovering about uh, the the FBI's involvement and the connection to its master plan, Mm -hmm. i.e. COINTELPRO.
1: So this was an important link to De- yes. to concretely show that link yes. be, was ordered by the FBI, the COINTELPRO program It wasn't just Hanrahan and his gang off on their own, but it was a it was a it was really created by the FBI.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um so that link we knew existed, but we couldn't we didn't actually have those documents in hand. And when we when we uh, asked the government to turn them over. In our case, uh, they, they said no. They said they're not relevant to to this case, and and the judge backed them up. Wow. Uh, so we're sitting here knowing that these documents exist, uh, but we can't use them. Um, because they're, you know, the church committee has them under wraps, and um, and the judge won't let us have them. So we, but we kept pounding away, and ultimately, on the eve of trial, the judge ordered that we could have some of these documents. Mm-hmm. And and the, we, we, I like to say there was a trilogy uh, of of documents, of FBI documents, that show that uh, this was an FBI. COINTELPRO conspiracy to assassinate a black leader. Uh, And the first uh, prong of that trilogy or that triangle is the floor plan that I was just talking about. Right,
1: of the apartment on Monroe Street.
2: Right. And the second um, uh, prong on on this trilogy is a document that was dated um, December 3rd, 1969, the day before the raid titled COINTELPRO, Counterintelligence Program. And it predicts that the raid is going to happen, and it's part of the COINTELPRO program.
1: And does it specifically mention Fred Hampton?
2: It, that's a good question. I, it, it was a fairly brief document. It was kind of just like there's going to be a raid, uh, the police are going to conduct this raid, and this is part of our COINTELPRO program. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so that was the second... Part of the uh, the trilogy, so we went on and 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 we, we we started this trial, which turned out to be the longest trial, civil trial in in, in court history, an eighteen month trial, as it was. Wow! I like to tell people that you know, as a young lawyer, how many lawyers' first trial is uh, eighteen months? <laughs> <But> <laughs> and, Jeff and, I, and the
1: whole <laughs> the whole affair was thirteen years. Right. And it's Jeff amazing Haas, to me that yeah. you and your cohorts had that kind of. Per- persistence to to keep going for 13 years but you finally did bring justice to the Hampton family maybe you could talk about what the what the final result was after all those years? Uh,
2: yeah, certainly. Yeah, uh, the, during that trial, um, we fought tooth and nail to, to to bring out as much evidence as we could, but they were the government was still suppressing large, large amounts of important evidence. But uh, during the middle of the trial, uh, the, the FBI witness uh, uh, slipped up on the stand, Roy Mitchell, and exposed the fact that there were. You know documents that we didn't have that we were supposed to have, uh, and the government panicked and produced uh, 200 volumes of Panther-related documents wow. that had not uh, been produced and oh. should have been produced. Uh, major, major uh, uh, cover-up exposed. Um, and um, so over the next three months. Uh, the judge gave them the right to redact those documents, so they didn't just turn over the 200 volumes. They went back and they, and they, um, you know, deleted certain portions of these documents and produced them a couple of do- uh, files a day, and and they, they, there was a lot of you know important uh, documents in there, but. Uh, At the very end, in in the last of the 200 volumes that they produced were this informant, Williams O'Neill's Confidential Informant Files. Um, And in those files was the third prong of this trilogy I was speaking about earlier, and that was what we called the bonus document. Uh, And it was uh, two from uh, one to, to Washington and one back, Uh, obtaining a $300 bonus for O'Neill for, quote, the success of the raid, and uh, that it was of tremendous value, that being the floor plan, and that it wasn't available from any other source. So uh, O'Neill got his 300, you know, 30 pieces of silver, $300, which actually today would be a couple thousand dollars uh, in a bonus. Um, And So we had not only the floor plan, then we have the, um, the, yes, it's COINTELPRO uh, document, and now we have, after the fact, congratulation and and payment for the success of a raid that left Fred Hampton and Mark Clark uh, uh, murdered. So that, uh, I think, in the annals of Of um, COINTELPRO and the annals of government uh, repression. And uh, this is the only, at least, um, actual documented. Uh, government assassination of a, of, of a black leader. I mean, we we know that the that the FBI uh, was behind trying to neutralize Malcolm X. We know that the FBI was behind trying to neutralize uh, Martin Luther King. But we don't have the kind of link. Uh, documented link to the actual assassins in Martin, in either Malcolm's case or in, in in Dr. King's case that we have here in 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 the Fred Hampton case, but uh, to 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 answer your question um, about. Uh, i I wouldn't exactly call it justice because um, as mrs. Hampton would uh, would would rightly say her her view of justice would have been that that, that all of these people who conspired to kill her son ended up behind bars and that of course never
1: happened right that's true
2: but um that trial went on for eighteen months it was it was uh, part farce and part tragedy because the judge was so uh, overtly connected to and, and, and a cheerleader for the FBI and, and the police. And after 18 months of, of powerful, powerful evidence being produced and, and, and put before the jury, the judge took the case from the jury uh, and uh, basically ruled for all of the conspirators.
1: He took the case away. Yeah. Is it is that legal?
2: Well, uh, it, it's it, let's put it this way: it's highly unusual. I've it, never heard of that. Yeah. Well, what happened was that the um, we got to the to to, to the eighteen month uh, point, and uh, the case was over in terms of evidence, and it went to the jury. And even though. Uh, the judge had carefully picked this jury to make sure that it would not represent, you know, the community. Uh, and despite the fact that he berated us for 18 months and and berated our evidence and all of that, uh, the jury uh, was hung. The hmm. jury uh, hadn't couldn't decide, hmm. at least after two days. And of course, in an 18-month trial, you'd expect the jury would be given more than two days. So he came upon the idea of. Um, declaring the jury hung, and then uh, making his own ruling, which was uh, there's no evidence to support um, a finding of of uh, liability against uh, wow, the. Wow! Put- after all that. Yeah, after all that. So, uh, and then for good measure, he he slapped a hundred thousand uh, uh, dollar appeal bond on us, thinking that that would keep us from being able to appeal his outrageous decisions. And, right. We were able to to, to to knock that out, and we took it to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals here in chicago and and they ruled in a two to one decision uh, really a landmark decision uh, that we had put on a powerful case of conspiracy um, under you know underpinned by COINTELPRO, not only to um, uh, destroy uh, Fred, you know the panthers and 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 uh, Fred Hampton uh, but also to cover it up. Um, and so that that then went to the U.S. Supreme Court, mm. and uh, we we were able to uh, uh, avoid what they call cert being granted. The the other side wanted to uh, the Supreme Court to overturn the the appellate court's decision, and uh, we were able to, to, to win win the day in the Supreme Court uh, with a five to three decision. Uh, saying they wouldn't take the federal case and a 701 decision saying they wouldn't take the police case. Uh, so we we made it through uh, the Supreme Court, came back to another judge here in Chicago, and then ultimately in early 1983, uh, we were able to um, settle the case um in uh, what was, at that point, uh, the the largest civil rights settlement uh, known.
4: An appeals court ordered a new trial. Government agencies waived the jury. It was simply a matter of working out a settlement, not easy, with five lawyers involved on each side. Today, after two years, they reached it. One million eight hundred fifty thousand dollars for the families of Hampton and Clark. The city, county, and U.S. governments denied any wrongdoing. They settled, they said, because another trial would cost too much. Fred Briggs, NBC News, Chicago.
2: But it wasn't in today's dollars. It doesn't look like much. It was just about two million dollars. But that was um, thirteen years uh, of struggle to to. Change the narrative from a shootout to a shoot-in to a um, murder uh, to assassination to a government assassination, and, and 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 I think we feel that that perhaps was our greatest accomplishment uh, in in fighting for those thirteen years.
1: Wow, that's an amazing story of persistence and just a twisted uh, journey to get to that point. You, of course, the, you've seen the movie that has come out recently called "Judas and the Black Messiah," a very powerful film. I was curious what you thought of it because you were an eyewitness to all these events. What did you think of this movie?
2: Well, I, I um, vowed before my partner Jeff Haas, who with with uh, me or me with him uh, were, uh, and he wrote he wrote the book on Fred hampton uh case called right. the assassination of fred hampton and um and as you mentioned, the first chapter of my book, which is more broadly about police torture in chicago um deals with with the Hampton case as well um you know in some ways uh the, the, Jeff and I vowed we would not become movie movie critics <laughs> uh and and I don't want to become one a movie critic All right um, uh, but I I will say that uh, on the one side, and you can as you can imagine, it, it, it was a very um, mixed emotions that I had watching it. I watched it a couple of times, uh-huh. um, and uh, uh, having as you, uh, been so involved in in, in uncovering uh, the evidence.
1: Yeah, it was such a major part of your
2: life. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and. Um, We, in some ways, in that 18 months, uh, were reenacting what they showed in two hours on the screen. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And, of course, in two hours on the screen, they um, are not going to uh, deal with um, 18 months of evidence. Right. Of course. Um, I think it was important for people to know uh, the general public to to know about Fred Hampton mm-hmm. uh, and to know about the fact that the FBI uh, assassinated him right um, i I know that there 's um, a difference of opinion or with uh, with within the panther community here in Chicago, particularly about whether um, the movie uh, did justice to to uh, the story and particularly. Whether uh, the format or the template of the movie, which the filmmakers have said uh, was was based on the Departed, you know, the 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 famous movie right. yeah, about the about uh, the uh, mafia in Boston and the right. FBI's involvement, kind of the duality that they created between Fred and O'Neill, the informant, and I think a a a lot of people were. Uh, troubled by how front and center O'Neill and the, the purported complexity of O'Neill uh, was depicted in the film, um, so um, that's something that 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 I think was um, and is a concern uh, that that some uh, Panthers whom I have a lot of respect for have have articulated. Um, so
1: what did they get right in this movie, in your opinion, or what was important to get out to the public?
2: Well, I think that, um, to the degree that, that it depicted, uh, that Fred was assassinated, uh, by the FBI, um, and that it went all the way up uh, to Hoover himself. I think that was very important. I think to the extent that it, um, uh, depicted Fred as a powerful leader um, that uh, was obviously very important as well. Uh, what struck me uh, was that as good as the actor who played Fred was...
3: You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom.
2: He couldn't um, really demonstrate how powerful a speaker the actual Fred Hampton was at 21 years old, and you can kind of judge for yourself. because, you know, the um, they show the actual Fred at some point um, in, I, I, I don't know if it's at the end of the movie. At the end of the yeah. film, they have
1: some footage of Fred. Yeah, yeah. One of his famous speeches and, that I'd seen.
2: Yes, and uh, uh, you can, you know, compare that. Um, I was really struck having spent a, a great deal of time um, in small rooms, uh, and big rooms uh, deposing and um, O'Neill and then sitting through uh, Jeff Haas's cross-examination of him at the trial. He was on the witness stand for a month. Um, And and during these depositions, he actually threatened me at one point. And um, the actor who played O'Neill really hauntingly to me uh, captured O'Neill. And uh, the video... Of the real O'Neill that starts the movie and ends the movie um, was video uh, that I had a hand in actually, um, uh, ha- you know, uh, uh, having it being made in the sense that um, the um, I had been working with the Eyes on the Prize people uh, who made that piece, the 1990 piece, right? Um, And they they said, "Can you get a hold of O'Neill?" And I said, "No, I I can't. I'm not in touch with O'Neill. This is like um, what 15, 14 years after the trial, right?" Um, But somehow I reached out to someone, who reached out to someone, and they were able to uh, get in touch with O'Neill, and he agreed to do that interview. And so, uh, based on the fact that I had had something to do with arranging that, they gave me a copy of that. Video, the entire video, which I have to this day, hmm. um, told me, of course, uh, as you can appreciate as a filmmaker, they totally embargoed it right, for <laughs> in course. terms until it but I mean they show the that,
1: they show that part of that interview at the end of the movie, and then it 's revealed uh, that he when it aired on uh, Eyes and the Prize after they edited it and you know put the film out on PBS, that he committed suicide the next day, I believe
4: and I remember. Uh, walking out of the office and uh, and looking through a little clearing over on the nu- the next block, which was right in front of uh, the Monroe Street address, and seeing a lot of police cars over there. And um, at that time, Bobby Rush came to the office. Uh, he had just come from over there, or maybe the coroner's office. In any case, we walked back over there, and uh, we both were speechless. We just walked through the house and, and saw where what had taken place and where he died and it was, it was shocking. And then I was, you know, I just began to realize that the information that I had supplied leading up to that moment had facilitated that raid. I knew that indirectly uh, I had contributed and I felt it and I felt bad about it. And then I got mad and then I had to conceal those feelings. Which made it worse. I couldn't. I couldn't say anything. I just had to continue to play the role.
2: Yeah, I I meant to go back and check that. I know he committed suicide right around the time it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure it was exactly the same day, but it certainly. We always wondered whether uh, the fact that. Uh, it you know it was coming out, or he knew that uh, his uh, that he had given this statement had something to do with his uh, running across the Eisenhower Expressway. I think it was pretty clear he was he was uh, uh, on drugs at the time that he did oh, it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, as well. But yes, that actor. Uh, yeah, Lakeith he, he Stanfield. A, he's a yeah, great he actor. He did a great job. They said he had to yeah. to go into therapy after
1: wow i mean it's a very nuanced role because he had to flip back and forth constantly in the, in the movie uh and you could see how it was just kind of eating him up
5: i took on the eyes of uh, uh somebody who didn't give a damn about nothing but themselves and attaining freedom and what he, he thought freedom was you know everybody wants to get freedom in one way or another and i play a character that's a part of those that body uh, the government arm which reached down and picked up a kid who didn't know what he was doing and made him kill his brother. It was really tough for me to do that and uh, went through a whole bunch of emotional changes and uh, realized at the end of the day, hopefully people will connect to the larger idea and the larger uh, love given by Fred Hampton and uh, Chairman Fred Hampton and his and his family and his estate. Fred Hampton was a pioneer who, care, who cared about his people and put his life on the line for his people and stood up in a way that so many people now wouldn't even dream of doing while they're on Twitter and all that, uh, liking and commenting. He was out there on the front lines really putting it down for the people and, and the cowardly government agencies surrounding them ended up getting them killed.
1: In his eyes you could see how the effect it had on him. It was an amazing performance, I thought.
2: Yeah, I, I, I thought it was remarkable as well. And I think in some ways that may be what troubled some of the Panthers, that not only focusing on O'Neill kind of as, as you know, um, if not an equal uh, character in, mm-hmm. in the movie, maybe even more a, of a dominant character in some ways um, than, than Fred, Uh, that that really wasn't doing justice to the broader story of of it all and to the broader story of who the Panthers were and and what they were about, you know. Um, But um, I guess you could say that the fact that... um, in the Golden Globes that um, the actor Kalua, Daniel Kalua, who mm-hmm. played Fred, got the best supporting actor.
1: Right, yeah. Which, it's interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right? it is interesting. Yeah, I have, thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, do yeah. you think it was a good thing or a bad thing to have had t- this major motion picture tell the story? I mean, the story, unfortunately, has been somewhat forgotten and uh, overlooked. Um, is it a good thing in a movie? It may not be a perfect movie, but... It does. Well,
2: I, you know what I hope for is that it'll uh, drive people to do more uh, investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you and I know, there was a remarkable film that I re- re- mentioned earlier, "The Murder of Fred Hampton," right, that, that, that Mike, Mike, Gray. Mike yeah, right. and, and Howard Alk made. Yeah, great film. That's still you can still go watch that, and you really can get a total feel for for who Fred Hampton was and the details of of the murder at the time and what was known at the time. And then if you fast forward to nineteen ninety, uh, and you go and you find Eyes on the Prize Two mm-hmm. uh, and that the episode that we were just talking about that O'Neill mm-hmm. was in and the interviewer was in was called A Nation of Law question mark. Yeah. And, and and it's a thirty minute piece on the Hampton case, updated of course, with all that we knew as of 1990, which was all the FBI stuff that wasn't known when the murder of Fred Hampton was made. And also, the second half of that piece was was about Attica. So right. it's, 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 it's a very powerful... But you powerful were also involved in the People's Law Office, well, right? Yes. My, my partners, Michael and, and Dennis, uh, were deeply, deeply involved in that case, um, which is a a whole other
1: uh we could do a whole podcast on Attica of course oh definitely what do you think is the legacy of Fred Hampton and I'm thinking about in the times we're living in today um how does Fred Hampton's story fit into that or what what connection can you make
2: well it obviously we're in another time where um the focus on on police violence and racism and white supremacy is, is at the forefront of, of not only the movements that are so powerfully um, demonstrating it, but it's it's on the agenda of, of the politicians to some degree or mm-hmm. another as well. Uh, and and the general public has to, to some degree, come to account for and and, and and is confronted with the realities of, of racism and, and police violence, and that's what uh, the Fred Hampton story um, uh, it, it demonstrates in in in, um, in in 50 years ago. Right. Uh, but it also uh, talks about uh, and and um, illuminates um, the what the panthers were about and you know from the rainbow coalition uh... the fact that they were about unity and about bringing people together of of, of all different races and and, and persuasions um, is something that's a real uh... lesson today where we have a lot of different um, um organizations and, and, a, and a lot of different groups that um, ethnic groups and racial groups that are the subject uh, in one way or another of, of police repression and government uh, discrimination. Um, and the message of, of unity uh, is important today uh, as it was then. And the kinds of programs that the Panthers were uh, um involved in and promoting uh, those kinds of pro- programs around education.
3: With no education, the people who take this local foundation start stealing money because they won't be really educated to why it's the people's thing anyway. You understand know what I'm saying? With no education, you have neo-colonialism instead of colonialism like you got in uh, Africa 9, like you got in, um, in, uh, in uh, Haiti. So what we're talking about is there has to be uh, education. In the program that's very important. As a matter of fact, we is so important for us that a person has to go through six weeks of our political education before he can consider himself a member of the party, able to even run down ideology for the party. Why? Because if they don't have an education, then they're nowhere. You dig what I'm saying? They're nowhere because they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. You you might get people caught up in an emotionless movement. Uh, you understand me? You might be, get them caught up in because they're poor and they want something. And then if they're not educated, they want more, and before you know it, they'll be capitalists, and before you know it, we'll have Negro imperialists.
2: Anti-war, um, um, you know, anti-hunger, all those kinds of things are still major issues uh, to be dealt with and addressed and are being addressed uh, by the, the movements today. So I mean, when you see the the, the movements calling for defunding the police, putting the money in other places, right? Uh, you know that. And Panthers weren't articulating it the same way, but it's the same yeah, principle. As
1: many correlations. Yeah,
2: yeah, and and uh, you know we could go on and on, but um, you know the lessons are many uh, in, in in terms of who Fred Hampton was, who the Panthers were, what the government did uh, in response. Uh, and um, those are just um, a few things uh, to touch on. I would mention this another, uh, actually two, two a set of two movies, uh, another one Mike Gray made, which was called American Revolution 2, right. which was made just... He and Howard Alk again made this that movie just before they started to make uh, what turned out to be the Murder of Fred Hampton. Right, and that's all about the Rainbow Coalition. Oh, okay. That's a that's a terrific movie to see the Panthers and Bobby Lee in particular. um, You know, with the 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 young Patriots. Appalachian group uh, that was very radical here in, mm-hmm. in the city back at that time right and Chacha Jimenez and the uh, young Lords which was a Puerto Rican group that was so powerful back in in Chicago and across the country so I think that um, yeah there are there are many lessons and I think that uh, people who are um, um, uh, energized um, um intellectually or, or or politically by by the movie uh, should uh, uh, try to make those links in terms of their own work and also to, 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 to do the research that uh, to see some of these other movies and 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 read some of the other treatments uh, of, of, uh, of Fred Hampton and, and the Panthers um, that that have preceded this movie right because of course This is Hollywood, after all. (laughs) Well, right. There's that.
0: Join us next time for the second part of this interview as the discussion turns to the legacy of police torture in Chicago spearheaded by the notorious commander John Burge, documented in Flint Taylor's landmark book, The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic, we recommend the documentary... The Murder of Fred Hampton, directed by Howard Alk and produced by Mike Gray, along with the book, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, written by Jeffrey Haas.
4: Original
2: music was composed and arranged for this episode by Trey Espinosa of the Berklee College of Music and Steve Ordauer.
0: And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. Leave us a rating and review so more people can hear about us and share about Rhythm of Life on social media and like us on Facebook. And we now leave you with some insight and wisdom from the wonderful poet, author, and musician, Mr. Gil Scott-Heron. Thank you for listening. I'm Steve Ordauer.
5: This has been a Rhythm and Light production.
3: There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no
4: slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. The revolution will not be televised,
3: will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. televised. The revolution will be no rerun,
5: brothers. The revolution will be live.